0: Well, thanks for joining me again for the Author Stories podcast, where I bring you the story behind the stories and the storytellers. Today, I am super excited to have Evie Green on the show with me today. Evie has a phenomenal new—do um, do we say—is it horror? Is it psychological suspense? It's kind of a mixture of all of those. Um, In it, it's titled "We Hear Voices," and this is a dynamic debut uh for this author and and uh I this is a book that you've gotta have. This is, you know, I, I say that um from time to time, but this is absolutely a book that you must have on your shelf for this fall going into a dark and dreary winter. We hear voices by Evie Green. Welcome to the show, Evie.
1: Thank you so much. What a great introduction. Thank you.
0: Well thank you. Um it is very well deserved. Um I love this book. This is this is fantastic, you know, with the with the pandemic that we've been in, we we're getting books a little differently. Um, you know, we used to have uh, our uh, delivery drivers come by four or five times a week and and bring stacks of paperbacks and arcs, and and now um, you know we're we're getting most of those digitally, and um, yeah. it, it's kind of changed the way that I do show prep. And I'll I'll find myself in bed at night with my Kindle reading, and I, I found uh, pretty quickly that We Hear Voices was not something I could casually read a chapter <laughs> or so and then drift off to sleep. No, I, I needed to dedicate some time where I could control the lights uh, around. Me. So. Yes. <laughs> um we, we begin each show with the same question, and we'll start there. Um, Evie, what is your first memory of wanting to be a writer or storyteller?
1: Oh yeah, great question. Uh, my first memory is lying in bed as a small child of maybe about six or seven, and I loved books. I always loved books, but it hadn't really—I hadn't really thought about who was writing the books. But my dad is a, a university professor, and he's written some books on his subject, which is film studies. And I remember lying in bed listening to him on. This was like a million years ago. So this typewriter, clacking of the keys of the typewriter, as he was writing a his book and I just remember it kind of the thought appearing in my head that like people can actually write books and the books that I read or that are read to me are written by somebody on a typewriter like that and just having this moment of like yeah maybe I could do that and that that was it just just lying in bed at night
0: when I was meant to be asleep. It's so funny that you bring that up because <laughs> um, I hear stories like that all the time mm-hmm. from from writers who have been on the show and. there's this weird thing that happens where when you're very young and you either go to a library or a bookstore, it seems like these things just appear out of the ether and, uh, but there's something that happens when you realize there's a person behind each of these (laughs) stories and each book represents a person and his or her experience. And with you, with a a father um, who you know, bridge that gap for you in a way, um, that had to be even, even more meaningful.
1: Yes, it is. There is something about the, it does something to your brain. I think the moment you realize that somebody has written that book and that therefore there is a job that, that is writing books that, um, I think changed my whole outlook on life. And yes, knowing, although I would, I I've read my father's books now, I would obviously never have read them then they're about Hitchcock and Laurel and Hardy and things like that. Um, It was just the fact that that somebody I know is writing a book and it it made it into something that was attainable, which was very exciting for young me.
0: So a a lot of us um, become obsessed with books and stories and storytelling. Mm -hmm. Um, And and, and, you know, the the time between that first obsession to the time of first publishing your book um, can be a a funny sort of circuitous route um, because. A lot of us take detours uh, through career and hobbies and and different things, you know, to support Absolutely. families and all that. What, what was your path like? Did you was was writing something that you just always pursued, and it was just a a natural, um, you know, ascent?
1: It it was something I always pursued, but I I went first of all into journalism because I thought that was, despite my epiphany at the age of six, I still felt that I was far more likely to be able to be paid to write if I was doing this as a journalist. I was, in fact, I was a terrible journalist. I was really bad at it. And I, I, my heart wasn't in the bit where you go knocking on people's doors and getting the story and all of that. I just liked the actual writing side of it. So I did end up with a job at The Guardian in London, like way back in the late 90s, where I was working on the diary column, which was a kind of political gossip column, and. It, it was a great opportunity, but I also had to get my permission to write a piece, uh, a, column, a regular column that was on the sports pages, but it was fiction, so I would make up that I, was, um, I, I loved football and that I was living with a man who loved football, and it was all fiction, every bit of it, which was a bit of a clue for me. <laughs> it was in the era of Bridget Jones' diary when it used to be a newspaper column mm-hmm. in London, so I was writing in that kind of style. And then I decided that journalism really was not, not for me. And on impulse, I sent an email to the travel editor of the newspaper saying, why don't I go traveling around the world for a year and I'll write a column for your travel section of the paper while I'm there? And I just, I knew she was going to say no. She, must, she had to be asked that question all the time. But she just went, yeah, sure, when are you going to go? So I <laughs> then had this like, oh, my God. I, I thought she'd say no and now I have to do it so I did I left my job and my everything my whole life and went away for a year by myself traveling around the world which was in loads of ways the best thing that ever happened to me and while I was there backpacking I met um, lots and lots of people and realized that particularly in Southeast Asia everybody was traveling this same kind of backpacking route around Thailand, Cambodia, Laos. It was, it was a kind of really weird subculture. And I thought, wouldn't it be great that a novel here? And also I had time, although I was writing my articles, they were once a week, so I had plenty of spare time. And so I started writing my first novel, which I then came home. This, this is going to make it sound a lot easier than it was. I came home, finished writing the novel, got a book deal for it, and became a novelist with a lot of <laughs> uh, bumps along the way. It was nowhere near that straightforward.
0: So, Evie, I, I know a lot of writers who began their careers in journalism and mm-hmm. uh, and and you had this this great story of not only journalism, but writing a fiction column within journalism yes. uh, and, and then having <laughs> this this great excursion to Southeast Asia. Um, how do you feel like journalism um, filled up your toolbox with. Um, with tools that you would need as a fiction writer? Uh, you know, because on the surface, they would maybe seem like very different things, but yeah. some a lot of the tools are very similar that you would use. What do you think Absolutely. you learned from a, as a journalist that helps you now as a fiction writer?
1: I think by far the biggest thing is a healthy respect for deadlines. I think journalism is <laughs> is, of course, so driven by deadlines, but your journalism deadline is likely to be like, do it in the next hour. Whereas to write a novel, they might you might have um, a year. So it is different, but it it absolutely did train me up to take deadlines seriously, and I am very much powered by deadlines to this day. So I think that's the the biggest thing journalism did for me. And another thing is the the discipline of just write it down. Um, it doesn't matter if it's not great. Just write it down, and then go back and look at it again. And that's very much how I write my novels as well. I don't mind writing a really bad first draft and then going back and editing it. So I suppose that comes down to editing, doesn't it? It, it yeah. all journalism also taught me how to just step away from something, step back, edit it, and then you'll find it's much better.
0: Do you do you think that journalism might help you to see stories a little differently? Uh, I would imagine, and this is just conjecture, uh, but writing for someone like the Guardian. Um, you may have been covering stories that, you know, five or six or eight or ten other people might also be covering. And, you know, as a journalist, it would seem to me that you would need to find uh, a new angle that everyone else isn't covering and to to look at stories and situations, uh, you know, from a unique perspective. And um, does that factor into your fiction writing at all?
1: Yeah, I guess it does. And I think, um, leading on from that, uh, another thing you have to do if you're writing an article and depending what, what you're writing about, often you'll have to set a scene very quickly. And by describing something, particularly travel journalism, I suppose, you have a few words and you have to be able to set a scene and you're doing your best to make somebody feel that they're there to, to really bring, pull them into the story. And that's exactly what you need to do as a, as a fiction writer as well, just take the fewest words possible to bring, to pull somebody immediately into what you're writing, because you want them to not be able to put the book down. You want them to, to feel vividly that they're absolutely there. And like, and that, that is also something that that you need to do in, in quite a lot of different branches of journalism, I would say. So, yeah, actually, I, I had not really thought of it like this before, but there are a, a lot of things that follow on one from the other.
0: Some. Um you discovered that you have a superpower and that's that you can cure hiccups. <laughs> yes. at, at what point did you discover the superpower?
1: <laughs> yeah, I wish I had a more useful superpower than that one. <laughs> <laughs> I think I must have discovered that when I was very bored. And I, I do I do, do it. I, I do it for myself and anybody um, who has hiccups who will allow me to um, try to cure them for them. It's just all about, Close your eyes, hold someone's hands really tightly, and then just I, I just talk them through talking to their diaphragm and how it's not going to jump up and down anymore, and just calming it down, mind over matter and it works it works every time
0: that's that's a really uh great skill uh, for someone to have, <laughs> especially when you are metaphorically doing that same thing with readers um, every <laughs> yes. day, holding their hands. <laughs> Walking them through situations and sometimes, you know, scaring the, the life out of them.
1: <laughs> yes, that's true. Yes, the hiccup skills do transfer into, into writing skills, maybe.
0: <laughs> and I know that your, your other writing uh, that you do uh, under a, a different name, um, mm-hmm. you have written uh, quite a bit of young adult fiction and some, mm-hmm. uh, some thrillers. Um, how do you distinguish that work that you do from the the stories that you're telling as Evie Green? Uh, what What is different about this book, We Hear Voices, that separates it from the other work that you do?
1: Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I didn't set out to write We Hear Voices as a horror novel. That wasn't what I was doing at all. I started writing it because... I I just had the story in my head and I wanted to write it. It was totally uncommissioned. Nobody in the world had asked me to write this book. (laughs) And I I just started doing it for my own entertainment. And then um, I showed it to my husband and then to my agent and and just kept going on it. It went through a lot of different drafts. But all the time I thought I was writing maybe speculative fiction, maybe, as you know, elements of it are are quite sci-fi. I wasn't quite sure, but... I it was fairly late along the editing process that it my editor just called me across the Atlantic and said, um, this is this is horror. We're gonna we're gonna do this as horror. And then that kind of unleashed the the Evie Green, who I think of as my my evil twin, my um <laughs> my dark side. It sort of unleashed something in her. And then it became a lot darker. There were a lot more spiders in it after that. And I just felt like I had license to do whatever I wanted at that point, which was funny because I hadn't been feeling that I didn't have license to do what I wanted. But I think I was really lucky with this one in that I had a fantastic editor who anything, however outlandish I suggested, she would just be like, yeah, put it in, let's do it. So I, I got to really un- unleash my dark
0: side. Jackson's battle to take control over his own mind and life portrays what millions of people are fighting with around the world, mental illness. His mother, desperate to free him from his demons and desperation, faces her own turmoil and anguish, doing anything possible to save her son through love and hope. After countless emotional and heartbreaking triumphant moments, June and her son must both accept that only Jackson can save himself. Pick up Jackson by Lynn McLaughlin and discover why people are raving about this book and saying things like, Jackson is symbolic of millions living with some form of mental illness and his mother represents the millions who have their own struggles caring for someone with a mental health issue. Jackson by Lynn McLaughlin. Pick it up today at Amazon.com. Both Barrels Publishing is the brainchild of successful indie author James P. Sumner. He has self-published over 15 titles in the last five years and has over 800,000 downloads so far in his career, meaning he has a wealth of knowledge and experience to share with the indie publishing community. Knowing the struggles of the modern-day indie author as well as he does, he wanted to create a platform that would allow writers of any level, To learn the ropes, navigate the pitfalls, and produce a professional novel without wasting time or money in the process. Both Barrels Publishing is the perfect one-stop shop for any indie author, combining James's expertise with his own team of editors and designers so you can help your novel realize its full potential and learn how to publish yourself. The purpose of Both Barrels Publishing is to help indie authors get their novels ready for publication without all the stress, hassle, and unnecessary expense. We want to make your lives easier, which is why we're giving you access to a top-notch team to publish your novels, along with a generous discount on their services. You can also work one-on-one with James to learn the intricacies of self-publishing. No hidden costs, no false promises. We simply want you to publish the best version of your novel. BothBarrelsPublishing.com You you mentioned... Um Several genres and and can uh, kind of refer to the tropes of those genres speculative fiction, maybe sci-fi, then finally, horror. Um, it, you know, we know that those genre definitions exist um, for, for bookstores, obviously, because when yeah. you walk into um, a bookstore and you say, "I would love to read an Evie. Green horror mm-hmm. novel." You need to know where to go to find that sort of thing. <laughs> yes. Um, exactly. But other than that, in the creative process, long before it gets to bookstores and, you know, gets designated on the jacket, what what genre it's going to fall into um, or or even maybe which publisher will will tackle it, depending on genre. Yeah. Um, long before all of that, do, do these genre definitions, um, do they play into the writing that how you think about the story you're working on?
1: No, I don't think so, not at all. I think genre is something that, as you say, it's for the books, shops, and um, publish it. The whole of publishing is sure. is quite defined by genres. I think one of the reasons I like just to be writing something, as I started with We Hear Voices, just to start writing something other than the things that I'm commissioned to write on the side is because I really love that idea that I could just write anything and it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what genre it is. In fact, I'm working on something now as a, an uncommissioned side project. And just today I said to my husband, oh, God, I think that I might be writing romance, which is a whole, a whole new one and not at all <laughs> what I was setting out to do. But it's just, just how it worked out. So I think that on one hand, I, I didn't set out to write horror or sci-fi or anything like that. But I, you do have the genres in your mind, I suppose, because it is such a big part of the publishing process. But then on the other hand, once somebody had said the word horror to me, I just became like, yeah, bring it on. Let's do it.
0: So when fun. when your uh when your agent or editor mentioned, OK, we're going to we're going to slot this in horror. Mm-hmm. Um, do you does that change the way that you write? Um, knowing that, is it like the gloves are just off and I can be as weird as I wanted to be? <laughs> yes. um, or, you know, are you thinking about certain? Well, you know if it's gonna be this genre, then I need to lean this way into into this storyline or uh I need to make sure that I add supernatural elements here or there um in your mind as you're writing, what makes it more horror
1: mm yeah that's that's an interesting question i i think I definitely added more spiders in once I knew it was horror, and i did i enjoyed <laughs> feeling like i could I could really um, do what I wanted in in that kind of respect. Um, in another way, I I was just writing the same book. I was writing it in lots of ways. It didn't change. The ending of the book didn't change at all through every draft of it. I did, but the structure, to an extent, did. And the the word horror was just quite freeing to me. I think I felt like I'll oh, oh, I'll just. I'll just unleash anything that I can think of. And it was really, really fun, which I hope comes through in the in the finished book because I just had such a great time
0: writing it. Absolutely. Um, Evie, there's something we've got to talk about. And mm-hmm. that is, um, we know how the publishing industry works and we hear voices, which is now out available everywhere in bookstores or uh, at Amazon and, and however you purchase books. Um, yeah. But to get to the point, we know that this book probably has been off of your desk for the better part of a year. Um, Yeah. And this was a story you envisioned probably two years ago or, you know, thereabouts. Yeah. Uh, And when you envisioned the story, it was just happy-go-lucky 2018, 2019, whatever. And the world (laughs) was as it should be. And then Uh along rolls 2020 and, you know, all of the the hell that has come along with it and global pandemics and all that and here mm-hmm. we have a, a a book we hear voices and there just happens to be this giant flu um going yeah. on yeah <laughs> tell, tell me a little bit about that and what, what what were you thinking at the time
1: yeah that that freaked me out so much i was i probably started writing this about 4 or 5 years ago mm-hmm. um just writing it for myself and then it found its public um in i think 2018 i finished the absolute last edits of it i finished just over a year ago in november 2019 so all the time i was writing it i thought i was just inventing this pandemic and and i did some research into what would actually happen if there was a pandemic and i spoke to people about it and i i i did what i could to to seem set the beginning of it at the tail end of a uh, flu pandemic and then it was entirely off my desk as you say when um, a real a real one came along which was so weird so totally freaky but um there there we go yeah i i did feel a little bit like i'd made it happen then i
0: i thought i did so so tell us a little bit about this um well, first off first off um before we get into the specifics of this book mm-hmm. um i'm i'm fascinated with the beginnings of stories there there's there's this moment where you're not thinking about anything and then all of a sudden either a character walks onto the stage of your mind or maybe um, a setting uh, is jogged in your your memory or your imagination and these things start happening And there's a world is created that doesn't exist yet there it is and then yeah how does it begin for you to do, do do new stories begin with a character is it a, a what-if question that you're asking yourself? What's usually that first kernel of an idea?
1: Yeah, to- uh, it's, it's a magical moment when the idea first comes. I, I normally find I'm just thinking about something, and then I find that the same thing's coming back again and again, and then I start thinking, oh, maybe I should, I should write this down. So in this case, it was a, an old English sci-fi book from the 60s called Chocolate by John Wyndham which I read um inappropriately young years ago and then I saw a a copy of it in a charity store here in England and bought it and read it again and it's the central idea of it is that there's a a little boy with a a strange voice talking in his head and that part just that part of it nothing else of it stayed with me so much I just couldn't shake the idea that I wanted to write about a, a boy with a voice in his head but not in 1960s Britain like this book, but in the near, fu- in near future London. And so I just started writing that. That was the beginning of it. And then because I have children myself, I, the character of his mother became bigger and bigger in my mind. And the near future, I was kind of pushing the, the, the social problems that we have now of inequalities and things like that, just pushing them a bit further and a bit further by setting it in in. A possible future, slightly dystopian. And then um I got to thinking where would this this imaginary friend in the boy's head have come from? And that was where the pandemic came in as a kind of um something that came at the end of of his illness as he as he got better. And then it just all filled itself in from there, really.
0: So Billy is an interesting character. Um did did he come to you kind of fully formed or? how has he evolved in the writing
1: i think billy did come fully formed he's he's always been the same little boy i think and he's struggled um you know struggling enormously with what starts off as a benign imaginary friend that he loves and then starts getting him to do worse and worse things so i think he was there as he is now really right from the beginning he always i could always just hear his voice in in my head and the way he gets words slightly wrong sometimes and all of that was was there right from the start um, yeah really the,
0: the the idea of a kid with an imaginary friend um, is is something that uh, a lot of us uh, either have experienced or know someone who has and mm-hmm. it, it seems like you know such a benign um, little thing that happens in a kid's imagination that uh, a lot of times they'll Create imaginary friends to help them cope with uh, certain things going on, or, or maybe it's uh, a family situation, or maybe they're just a, mm. a, a lonely kid. Um, but th- you know, the things we take for granted can can be horrifying. If you if you <laughs> yes. start thinking about it. And what is what do the people around Billy start thinking about this imaginary friend?
1: Yeah so the imaginary friend he calls Delphi who comes at the very moment that he starts to recover from his illness and so at first everybody around him there's his his mother his stepfather um his older sister Nina who's um one of the protagonists in the story they all think that that Delphi's fantastic and that he's as he recovers he's explaining the world to Delphi and so he's he's engaging with things again and it's a while it's the best thing that could possibly have happened to him and then the things that that he asked him to do become more and more strange and disturbing culminating in something very um, disturbing which i won't i won't say what it is so i what i wanted to capture was the his mother in particular and the, the people around him going from thinking oh how lovely an imaginary friend how cute and to thinking what is this voice in his head? What you know is it schizophrenia? Um, is it? Does he need to see somebody about it? Or is it? Could it still? Though she, Rachel, his mum in particular, is always hanging on to that. Could it? It could still be okay. It still might be all right. He might shake it off. It might go, and um, it it doesn't happen the way she would like it to happen. Can we say.
0: <laughs> um- Tell me about this. Um, what was the idea for the, the flu that came to you? And, and, and obviously, you didn't know about COVID at the time. No. And it, when when this, the reality of this year uh, you know, started becoming, um, when we started knowing what was going on, did you fear that people would have an adverse reaction to a story dealing with something like this?
1: Um, yes, I did. I did feel that it might be a, a pandemic story might be the very last thing anybody wants to read um, when we have a real one, because it's not escapism. But the pandemic is very much just the beginning of the story and it moves on from there. Um I it was it came along when, like I said, the book was so completely finished. So I, I didn't feed in anything at all of Covid into the book, not a single word of it. Um, apart from a little note i wrote at the beginning to say this isn't about covid um so it came in in a way the book was because the book was finished before covid it's just a coincidence it's got nothing to do with it but i know that it's anybody who reads it is reading it in the world where we have got covid and it was very much written in the world where we haven't so that is quite a strange thing to um to take on
0: board The the book is is set in the near future. Um, Mm -hmm. What what was your your thought process about when to set this book and and what things um, you know that you may be able to or or not be able to get away with by pushing it forward a little bit into the future?
1: Yes, I I thought it would be. It was partly for my own entertainment to set it a little bit into the future because it made me think about things like AI. What's what's going to where do we go from here what what does happen next and just to think about about a few a few things and and try out what what would it be like you know like you said what if just doing a lot of what if questions and so ai features in it a lot the disparity between rich and poor features a lot and inequality features in it very much so i was really just playing with those ideas and london is a city i know very well so i used that as a setting, but London already has an enormous um, housing crisis, and that's reflected in the book. That the family, Rachel and Billy, and and the family live in a terrible substandard house that's falling apart around them. Whereas Nina, who's seventeen, her boyfriend is is from a super rich family, and they live in an incredible house where the the bridge speaks to him and tells him his blood sugar is <laughs> low, and so just it's <laughs> just really playing around with, with those ideas in fiction, which I, um, I, yeah, I, I, really, I found it really interesting, thought provoking thing to do.
0: Well, Evie, how do you follow up a book? Like we hear voices. What, uh, you know, when you're finished with a story like this, um, where do you go from here? Yeah,
1: it's I, I, um, I would love to write another Evie Green, book. I do have, um, have an idea in my mind, but we will see. I, I, it it certainly has opened up a whole new way of writing for me and I would absolutely love to do more like more like that. I do have a load of notes about what happens to these characters next, so who knows maybe one day I'll get to write part 2.
0: Ah, uh, we're um more in this world?
1: Yes. Possibly. I I I'd like to or um I also have a plan for a whole different near future book by Evie Green which I would like to write one day so it. yeah we'll see right now i'm writing ya under my my other name so i'm going to just let this one settle a bit and then then come back to the world of evie green
0: well the book we hear voices is out everywhere now in hardcover and kindle edition and audiobook um evie i am a huge fan of audiobooks. they they help me to me do the show prep that i need to do and just reading for my own pleasure um yeah I, how how do you feel like the audio came out, uh, of the audio interpretation of this came out?
1: Oh, I love it. I think it came out really well. I'm a huge fan of audiobooks as well. I always, always have an audiobook on the go as well as a, a book. I think you sometimes I used to think that you hear things, hear a story and react to it differently from if you're reading it. But now I look back on books, I can't remember whether I read it, paper book or listened to the audio. I think they're, they're really... Um, it's a, it feels to me like a whole new. I really like it. I love the audiobook of this, I think it's come out incredibly well.
0: Well, there's links to it in the show notes of this episode to help uh, people find it. Um, Evie, if if people are just learning about you and want to dig into all the great stuff you do, is there a place where they can connect with you online?
1: There is, I'm on Twitter under my real name, which is Emily Barr. R. I'm on Instagram. Evie Green is on Instagram. Um, Evie hears voices. And I have a website, emilybar.com, which has a page about Evie Green as well.
0: Excellent. We'll put links to those places where people can find you easily. Uh, Evie, this has been so much fun chatting. Uh, thank you for the book. And thank you for taking time to come on the show today.
1: Thank you so much for inviting me on the show. It's been wonderful.
0: A hitman with a conscience. Ian Bragg is paid to kill people. Only bad people and not many, but for a great deal of money. Case the target. Make the hit. Move on. Until he meets the woman with sparkling green eyes who changes everything. A few pre-readers had this to say about Ian Bragg. Mark Dawson, million-selling thriller author, says a rip-roaring ride from start to breathless finish. Craig Martell hit a home run with the operator. The taut, lean prose and lightning-fast pace... Make this a page-turner without sacrificing an ounce of story or depth. You'll find yourself rooting for the hitman main character as he faces the toughest decision of his career. The Operator is the start of a new thriller series I expect to see burning up bestseller list for years to come, says A.C. Fuller, author of The Crime Beat and Alex Vane Media Thrillers. Suave, romantic, and lethal, Ian Bragg is everything you want in a highly paid assassin. Can't wait to ride this train, says James Blatch, self publishing formula. It's been a long time since I fell this hard in love with a book, a very long time, author of Women of Wine County Romantic Suspense, Terry Wells Brown says. Grab this book from Craig Martell, The Operator. john driscoll book one by thomas o'callahan a sociopathic killer is using the internet to lure seemingly random women to their gruesome deaths in new york city during his heinous murder spree this madman is extracting the bones of his victims his sheer brutality has the residents of the big apple in panic mode who is this twisted psycho who's abducted a housewife in broad daylight only to dispose of her lifeless body alongside a lake in prospect park nailed the boneless remains of a nameless drifter to the underside of a boardwalk at Rockaway Beach, allowed the gutted corpse of a single parent to wash ashore under the Brooklyn Bridge, and has had the audacity to leave the desecrated body of the Magnolia T heiress rotting atop trash at one of the city's sanitation dumps. NYPD's top cop, Homicide Commander John W. Driscoll, has never witnessed such savagery. Hammered daily by the District Attorney, the mayor and the police commissioner. The lieutenant who's battling his own inner demons must use every resource available to put an end to the killings. In a race against time, Driscoll, aided by Sergeant Allegante and Detective Cedric Tomlinson, sets out on a roller coaster of an investigation to first identify the villainous fiend and then put an end to his butchering. Grab Bone Thief by Thomas O'Callaghan now.